Simple Beep, episode 56, Behind the Show. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're recording a little bit later than planned because uh, we both managed to get sick this week, but I think we're both on the mend. Yeah. And the little extended time between shows just means we've got more follow-up than usual. That's right. We've got follow-up spanning multiple episodes. And first, we'll address some Newton-related follow-up. In our Newton episodes, when we talked about uh, modern emulation of the Newton, we mostly focused on Einstein, the emulator that uh, can run on Mac, Linux, and iOS. But there's another emulator called Leibniz, uh, which I looked up is um, named after another German uh, math-related philosopher who uh, also worked on differential and integral calculus, independent of Isaac Newton, as the Wikipedia article says. Right. They're like the co-discoverers slash inventors of calculus, basically. Ed, I think you found actually this link, a a blogspot post about the Leibniz emulator. Um, And one of the things I love about this post is it says, like, we know that Einstein exists. This emulator isn't meant to compete with Einstein. Einstein has an eye towards the future. And this is firmly rooted in the past. It's an emulator for like the initial series of Newton hardware, the kind of Newton 100 series and the clones from like the right at the beginning of the era. Yeah. So it's an emulator that's just targeting the one generation of device, the one generation of operating system. And obviously that makes a lot of sense when you're building an emulator, not to bite off more than you can chew. It's a difficult enough problem to begin with. And actually, we're going to be talking a lot about emulation later in the show and how there you know, might be different emulators that are better tools for certain problems or trying to emulate certain classes of devices. So it's good to see that there's another contribution in the Newton category. This will hopefully make it easier for more people to get access to the whole catalog of Newton software and see it as it was intended for a wider range of devices. Continuing on the Newton theme, we just can't get off of it after we did two straight episodes. (laughs) Since we last recorded, there was a big milestone for the Newton, specifically for the E-Mate, which turned 20 years old on March 7th, and the Newton community uh, celebrated accordingly. And as I was reading some of the coverage that was about this Pretty pretty big anniversary, 20 years. You know, it was 1997 that it was released and then canceled in 1998, so it didn't last very long. Uh, but as I was reading some of the coverage, I learned a few new things that we hadn't covered in previous episodes, specifically about the E-Mate. And one of the interesting things about it is we compared it to later, like the iBook, which came in several different colors. I remembered the... Uh, the blueberry and tangerine and graphite, but there was also indigo and key lime. And uh, I got a message from Stephen Hackett earlier this week who said he got a key lime iBook and it was like making his eyes burn out (laughs) (laughs) because the color is so bright. Apparently, there were also plans to make different multicolor e-mates. And there are some basically like some stills from a product demo video that happened. And then also some people actually have physical access to some of these prototypes. And so there were, I think, pink and red and blue. And then there was one that maybe was never intended for market, but was just a pure prototype, like a, you know, in-house design prototype 
that was clear. And there are some really excellent photos of that clear emate on a Flickr album that we'll link to in the show notes. And that one, I think, is it. I think that was definitely intended just as a prototype because the keyboard is still the solid green keys, um, but all the shell is is clear. So it's interesting that in terms of the design, you know, we noticed that through line in the design that hey, they were going for multiple colors, and like even if the platform died, that desire for design and having a like customizable or more personal uh, color choice in Apple platforms was something that lived on. And then, you know, two years later, we had five flavor iMacs. Moving on to follow up about our episode most recently about Apple concepts. Uh, We talked about the knowledge navigator, which was kind of distributed to the Apple community through this video. And we talked about the professor in his like too well-decorated office, his palatial estate. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, Listener of the show, Jordan Kennedy tweeted us a link to a follow-up video about the Knowledge Navigator uh, that kind of goes into more of the implications a Knowledge Navigator-like device or suite of devices could have in different settings, like a classroom or in um, helping people to read. And so we'll put a link to this video in the show notes. But uh, the cool thing about this video is that it goes beyond the kind of Kindle-esque hardware that we discussed in the original video. That hardware makes an appearance, and specifically in the case of helping someone learn to read through a combination of having, like, follow the words along on the screen as it's reading out to you, and you can interact back to it through speech. Uh, Speech is a big component. But there's also a different form factor that looks more like a Nintendo DS, like a very small, palm-sized clamshell laptop esque thing. And uh, the first use case of this knowledge navigator is a kid preparing a class report on volcanoes. And so he kind of does a cool little 3D fly through of a volcano and looks at how the magma bubbles up from under the earth's crust, uh, kind of like at an at home setting. And then it shows him uh, presenting in the classroom. And I guess he is uh, like airplaying <laughs> video content from his little handheld knowledge navigator to the entirety of the classroom blackboard. And it's it's kind of a hammy segment where the kids look bored at the 3D flyby and the cutaway showing how the, the magma rises up. But then he goes, and this is what a volcanic explosion looks like in real life. And it switches to full color video of a volcano erupting uh, across the whole blackboard and the kids erupt in applause. It's a really cool video and they have some celebrities on there. Ray Bradbury is talking about the implications of a knowledge navigator like device in uh, helping towards literacy. And uh, Steve Wozniak is there, of course, talking about overall implications. So it's a it's a good video to watch. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. And even if it's all science fiction, Ray Bradbury knows a thing or two about science fiction. Absolutely. And one last thing coming from our concepts episode, we talked a little bit about the Pippin, which is kind of the least concept-like device that we discussed on that show. But we were wondering if there was really any way to get at some of the Pippin games that were ever made available. And as I was doing research for a different topic for this show, I stumbled across a batch of Pippin software on a site called Macintosh Repository. And it looks like most of the titles on here are Japanese, so you may need uh, some additional language skills to get the uh, full full value out of these. Um, but there are some some other ones, including, interestingly, uh, apparently a Pippin port of Marathon, 
which of course was originally for the Mac. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I guess they probably could have reused almost the entire code base. Um, but there's maybe a dozen different Pippin games on here that are available for download. Now, I don't know exactly what you would need to get these things running, um, whether a standard Mac emulator would get you there or whether you need some, I don't know, Pippin ROMs or additional uh, like enabler software to get them running. But uh, if anyone has ever tried getting one of those or even successfully gotten those running, it would be cool to hear exactly how they did it because I know that emulation can be a tricky, tricky process as I'm going to talk about later in the show. Uh, but it would be cool to see some of that software brought back to life. At least we know that the bits are available out there on the internet. Now it's a matter of seeing what can be done with them. Yeah, it must be a special case because I remember one of the the cool points that we discovered in looking up stuff about the Pippin was that each CD, each software package basically had its own copy of the OS. So yeah, there must be a, a really interesting ROM there that's like, this is a boot disk. Right. And most of these basically disk images for these games are in the like 100 to 200 megabyte range, which makes sense. I mean, you're squarely into the territory where you need to be distributing that on a CD, but not maxing out the capacity of the cd makes sense given the time that the pippin was was running you know not every cd-rom title then was pushing a full 700 megabytes you go a couple years later and they certainly were and then you know like trying to cram in every last little bit of rich media content that they could and optimize it down to fit on a single disc until you get to something like uh riven the sequel to mist which came on five cds <laughs> yes or a dvd if you were very lucky um so I don't know if those images include system software or not. Like I said, I just happened upon these and wanted to point them out, but uh, I haven't had a whole lot of time to explore them. Yeah, let's move on to our main topic for this episode, a behind-the-scenes tour of what goes into making an episode of Simple Beep uh, and any of the research, whether it's just purely academic or uh, using the software itself or, in some cases, hardware that uh, goes into the classic Apple and Mac community. And so if you're like me and occasionally have a strong aversion to podcasters podcasting about podcasting, now would be the time to just hit the chapter skip button because we're going to talk about the the podcasting setup first. But there's a lot of good how-to and classic Mac stuff towards the later half of our outline. Don't just, don't just delete the episode now. Uh, so if you're interested in how we make the show on modern Macs, keep listening now. Otherwise, skip ahead a few minutes and we'll see you there. Uh, Ed, do you want to start on your end? Sure. So we're just going to run down the the basic equipment that we've been using and maybe how that's evolved over the course of the show. So right now I'm talking into a Blue Yeti microphone. It's like the go-to basic podcaster's microphone. And I found it to be very solid for my purposes. Um the microphone all on its own is maybe maybe a little bit bare bones. I've added on a few things. So I, I do have uh, not a shock mount, but I do have a swivel arm that's attached to my desk. Uh, and that's the Heil PL2T arm, uh, which I got a while ago. Actually, I guess I got these both about two years ago. I remember when I bought, when I bought the Yeti, it was on a Black Friday sale. It was right after we had started the show because we started the show in November. And so it was Black Friday and I'm like, I'm with family over Thanksgiving 
because I think it was Thanksgiving night, you know, like early Black Friday Eve, blah, blah, you know, rampant consumerism. I'm like, I got to buy this microphone. My, my dad was there and he's like, why are you buying things for yourself four weeks before Christmas? I'm like, because I have to record two shows between now and then. It's for the show. Yeah, it's for work. Um, but that is the mic that I've I've stuck with for all this time. Uh, and I've found it to be pretty reliable. If you go back all the way to those early episodes, though, I was on a Blue Snowball, which is really their like entry-level mic. I've now moved that to my office and use it like if I want to do just like a very basic audio or video conference there and want something better than uh, a headphone mic. Or if we have multiple people in the room and we're doing it via computer instead of via one of our, you know, like bog standard Cisco voice conferencing telephones. Um, so it's it's moved on, uh, but is still still getting some use. As for recording itself on my end, I, I keep it pretty simple. Um, I've been using Piezo since, uh, I think since it was still in the Mac App Store. They had a transition where they moved out of the Mac App Store, uh, but kept their delightful skeuomorphic interface. Uh, it's It looks like an old-timey radio, and it's got these uh, moving level arms, and uh, it looks really fantastic. Uh, and uh, it has the little, like, rolling odometer timer. Um, and it's just a rock-solid little app. It's, you know, it's from Rogue Amoeba, the same people that make Audio Hijack. It's, uh, it's like Audio Hijack without any of the setup. I also have a copy of Audio Hijack, but only pull it out when I feel like I need to actually do something additional to audio or bring together multiple audio sources. Did you have to do a crazy Audio Hijack setup for our very first episode to play the startup chimes live as we recorded instead of trying to put them in in post? I did try that. And actually, that was not Audio Hijack because that was before Audio Hijack 3 was released. And so I installed some terrible, terrible software like Sound Siphon or Sound Flower or something and tried to play them out of VLC. And it That's was right. It was terribly laggy and basically didn't work. And I think you had to put them in post anyway. Yeah. Um, now that would be uh, almost trivially easy with Audio Hijack. And so... Um, there are many things uh, I still really like our first episode, but there are many things that uh, I wish could have been different. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for me to listen to now, although I think it still does a good job of covering the subject. For my end of the recording side, I am talking into a Shure PG42 mic with a USB interface, not like XLR. Um, I think I heard about this. This may be a mic that Syracuse uses or has used. Um, because Ed, I'll do you one worse in our first couple episodes, I was recording on a blue snowflake microphone, which is designed to be like very bare bones. And it's more that it's portable and less that it sounds good. It's like the size of a ping pong ball, right? Yep. Uh, so I was, I had that from college, I think to like basically get ideas for like acoustic guitar noodling, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> um, and uh, was using that for a while, but yeah, finally made the upgrade. The cool thing about this mic is that it came with a whole bunch of things like a shock mount and all the cables necessary. So I have it in its shock mount uh, with an aftermarket pop filter. And the shock mount is on a like very cheap, basic mic stand that uh, is like locked in with all its various clamps just right because it's kind of a heavy mic um, and I don't want the whole stand to tip over. 
Um, the final little piece of customization is when I upgraded to the late 2016 MacBook Pro, I bought a monoprice USB type C to USB type B cable. So I don't have to fiddle with any adapters when I record. Yeah, when we started, uh, I was on a, what, a 2000, mm, <laughs> an aging uh, MacBook Pro, which has, uh, which is still sitting here, but has not been booted in a long time. Um, and now I'm on the 4K iMac. Uh, in the interim, also moved uh, to a new apartment, built an IKEA standing-only desk out of parts. Um, I got the four telescoping legs and a plain... Uh, plain white desktop um, and a little like shelf unit that sits above it. And it's worked well for me. Uh, also then got a matching white stool so I can either sit or stand, but I'm the one that sits or stands. My desk does not sit or stand. It's at a fi- fixed height. And then uh, I have a pair of headphones that I really only use when we record and when I edit. And these are Sennheiser 280s. These are headphones that I got at an old job and took with me when I left that job. Do not tell anybody. I forget exactly which Sennheiser headphones I'm wearing at the moment. They're um, they're one of their basic, fully over-the-ear type because I find that absolutely necessary. Same. Yeah. I'm, at, at this point, I, I have like a cheap pair of Sennheiser on-ear ones at my office and like I just need to replace them because now it's either buds or over-the-ear because anything else, you're just compressing your brain at that point, it feels like. And then as far as the software I use to record, um, I keep it a, <laughs> very basic. I have QuickTime Player uh, recording the audio directly from my microphone. And as a backup, I have Ecamm's Skype Call Recorder recording both sides of our call. And uh, for those of you who have used this, you know that it comes with a whole suite of tools that may just be glorified Apple scripts to split up the the file that it saves into different tracks. And I've never had to use these tools, but they're still sitting in my applications folder. Yeah, we, we hope that we never have to fall back on the Skype audio. We only had one <laughs> in our run, knock on wood, we've only had one audio mishap and that was my fault. <laughs> it's a good reminder that even these simple tools on the Mac will get it done for you know just pulling in that local audio. Uh, they're the exact same tools that we recommend when we have guests on the show. We say you know okay uh, if you've got Audio Hijack and love it, go for it. Otherwise, Piezo is good. Otherwise, QuickTime Player is installed on your Mac and will totally cut it. Uh, and don't worry, we've got the the full call on as a backup from Brian's end. Yeah. Then how about editing the show? So. I don't know how many people know that uh, once the show is done, we kind of split up tasks. So I am on the show notes and website end, and Brian is on the editing end. Yeah. And in the editing end, similar kind of the stuff that comes with my Mac, I edit in GarageBand. Uh, As has been mentioned, we do a double ender. So again, knock on wood, uh, I take Ed's local audio recording, put that in as a track, I take my local recording, put that in as a track, and uh, sometimes we'll have guests or like sound effects or, or other things that go on their own tracks. But it's basically GarageBand. Uh, I use some plugin settings recommended by Jason Snell in a post over at Six Colors. We'll put that in the show notes. It's some settings like compressor threshold, uh, noise gate, the gain, the attack, and they've been working very well. 
Yeah, that that post is a great public service to podcasters everywhere. And they're a great starting point. And I found like when I was recording for Pico Mac, I found that uh, I often had to set my noise gate differently. Like it's a good starting point. And then you just tweak those settings and you'll find pretty much everything that you need. The only time that I think we've ever deviated significantly from those was when we did the live interviews at Release Notes. And uh, for that occasion, I took in the local files and EQ'd the heck out of them um, to try to make them sound sort of even because basically every interview was recorded in a different room in or around the conference. And so we had lots of different basically acoustic patterns that we were dealing with. And uh, if you want to go in there and play with the EQ on each track in, again, in GarageBand, like you can, you can really improve the results of, of a sound file, but on the other hand, you have to weigh the amount of time that you spend fiddling versus, uh, (laughs) versus the results that you get back. And uh, speaking of that timing, um, I think, you know, we've been doing the show for over two years now and I still am like trying to get into a reliable groove. I've certainly improved my, like the amount of time it takes, but I think it still is pretty consistently two to three X the show's length to get everything just right on the first cut. And then Ed is a saint because he will listen all the way through the first cut of a show and provide notes. Uh, and then we'll, I'll make some fixes and that's usually what goes out. Yeah, and usually it doesn't even require any fixes. One of the things that I've been using for that was I I used to huff duff the audio track, um, which is kind of like, oh, well, that's public link. <laughs> um, but one of the great tools that I've been able to use that, again, came out since we started is if you're an Overcast Premium member, you can now go to overcast.fm slash uploads, and you can upload up to two gigabytes of audio files. And so I do it from there. Uh, the one thing that I don't like about that feature is that it also works with the auto delete feature in uh, Overcast. And what that means is it doesn't just like remove the episode and you'd have to re-download it because there's no feed. It actually deletes it from S3 as soon as the episode finishes. So I usually listen through once for audio quality at the same settings I would listen to most of my podcasts on in Overcast, like including Smart Speed. And then... Uh, if I have not been sitting down and doing show notes during that first listen, I'll roll it back to the beginning and sort of blast through it at 2x to just get all the show notes in order. But that means I have to like have my finger on the pause button when we get down towards the end of the episode, or I have to go go back and re-upload it again. <laughs> not that it's a huge deal, but you know, it's kind of funny. You also mentioned, you know, sending audio files around. We go through Dropbox. And another thing that is a huge, great, huge addition for anyone who's doing a podcast with people who are not always on the show, like if, if you're always collaborating on the show, set up a shared Dropbox folder, obviously. But if you have guests now, again, another innovation in the past two years is the Dropbox file requests feature, which is awesome because we have a separate folder in our shared folder for each episode where we put the source audio and the final audio and any images or links or things that we need to put in for the show notes. And with a file request, you can request that uh, when the person uploads their audio, it goes directly into that subfolder. So it's like, 
oh, we had people on episode 53, send them a file request for the episode 53 folder, and it just all appears in place, which is a really convenient workflow. Some final miscellaneous stuff on my end. Uh, we often will drop in audio from keynotes, and uh, this will be a resource we talk about a little bit later in the show. But uh, initially, when I was on an older MacBook Air, I had the Safari extension click to plugin, uh, formerly known as click to flash. And uh, besides its main focus of like kind of stopping the flash from autoplaying and trying to replace it with a HTML5 video object or whatever, uh, it also added some cool right-click options, especially to YouTube, where it was like download source video. And so that's how I would get the audio um, of these keynotes into like crop it and drop it in. And uh, since I've got my new Mac, I haven't installed Flash, and I'm seeing how long I can make it without this. Uh, but so now I don't need click to plug in. And if I ever need to rip a YouTube video, um, I just go to one of the the like SEO'd to hell <laughs> YouTube download sites. And uh, that's been working so far. So hopefully that doesn't come back to bite me. I think, yeah, the one time that I pulled something for sound effects for us from YouTube, if we only need uh, like a five second clip, Again, audio hijack to the rescue. Just like you know, point it at Safari and play the video in Safari and just clip out that that very short section. If we need something more extended or want to have a copy of the entire video to pull from, uh, there are also tutorials. I know the last time that I did this, where, where you can, I think, basically just take the YouTube URL and plug it into VLC and manage to get it to play there and then and then save out audio or video uh that way that's smart <laughs> yeah i think you, you have to you, you take the url and then it it somehow gives you a list of like the various qualities of the video and you pick the one that you want and then you put that into the like open network streams command n in in uh vlc and then there's an option there that's like play the video or like download data as fast as possible and you turn that one on and save it to save it to disk. I'll look up. I know I found a like pretty easy tutorial on that so I can link that up as well. And then finally before encoding the like the full mix out to MP3. This is more of a habit at this point but I run it through the Conversation Networks software Levelator which just does its own proprietary brand of magic to try and even out our voices if are I if the EQ hasn't done it well enough, and uh, just as of like one or two episodes ago, we've started adding chapters to our uh, podcasts. Yeah, so there's a, a kind of industry standard app for this that we had heard about is the Chapters app on the Mac App Store, but we gave it a go and it was not working at all. So we had to resort to some other means. There are other ways of adding chapters. I think it can even be done in GarageBand, but it's it's super clunky to do it that way. Yeah. And there are some clunky website interfaces too, but nevertheless, we're, we're making it work. Uh, but if you listen to ATP, uh, Marco has hinted that he's working on a Mac app to handle this. And it might be even how ATP itself... Uh, manages this. So we're waiting for that to be released. Um, as for uh, then actually posting the show up at the end of the week, uh, we have our outline that we prepare in a Google Doc. Um, we're very like compartmentalized episode by episode. 
So we create a new document for each episode because, my gosh, how long would it be if we had done this all in like one running document? Which is, I think, how some other shows do it. Uh, we also uh, communicate and share links and stuff during when we're not recording on uh, on Slack. And we do the same thing there where we start a new channel for every episode and then kind of aggressively archive them uh, once we're done because it just keeps things nice and simple and we can know exactly uh, exactly where things are going. You know, maybe we're working on one or two topics at a time and uh, it just keeps it nice and simple for us. It's I, I think that we are a, a little bit unique in the way that we deal with that, but uh, we've got our workflow down. So... Yeah, it works. As I go through the the first cut then and take our outline and turn it into what you actually see on simplebeep.com is uh, obviously the Google document is rich text, but I write up our show notes and outline in Markdown. And recently I've been using Byword for that just because it's been the nicest, uh, nicest compromise of seeing what the mark markdown will translate into and also really easy access to add in links and stuff um just because it has like the kind of kind of standard now keyboard shortcut command k like if you select text in byword and hit command k it will put in the markdown brackets and parentheses and put the cursor in the right place so if you have a link on the clipboard all you have to do is select the text and hit command kv and and you get a link, which is really nice. And then the other nice thing about having the markdown is that I can preview it locally in marked. And then when it's all ready, I just copy and paste it into a markdown block in our Squarespace site. Um, occasionally we get into trouble there, especially when we're linking to Wikipedia sites, because they sometimes end in parentheses, uh, which confuses the Squarespace markdown parser. Never, ever confuses marked. So I wish that Squarespace would uh, get a little smarter about that. So sometimes I have to fiddle with the links afterwards. Um, I also then uh, add in the any images that we put in the notes uh, right there in the Squarespace site and uh, hit publish. And it's off to everybody's podcast app. So yeah, that's how we make the show on our modern hardware. But this is a show about classic hardware and classic software. And we've had a bunch of episodes where we look back specifically at some classic software. And it's useful to get some first-person experience. We have memories of a lot of this software, but we don't want to rely on 20-year-old memories to actually record the show because uh, we would have lots of gaps and inaccuracies. So even for some of our most beloved applications, uh, we want to go back and see exactly how they functioned. Were they exactly the way that we remembered them? Was escape velocity as fun as it always was? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we realized that we had to start looking for ways to run this software uh, in our modern lives, whether that's on modern hardware or older hardware. And so I find that uh, while well, given the hardware that I had in my apartment when we started recording the show, and just in general, I've found it somewhat easier to go the emulation route. And so there are two major emulators that work for uh, emulating the classic Mac. There's Basilisk, which is a 68K Mac emulator, and Sheepshaver, which is a PowerPC Mac emulator. And up until just before this show, I had only set up Basilisk. And 
I think now I've I've finally, finally got Sheep Shaver up and running. I think it might be my default now. Um, but I started running Basilisk all the way back in, I think, episode two or three. For Kaleidoscope. We were talking about Kaleidoscope, exactly. Uh, to get it running and then to do the foolish, foolish thing of trying to do graphics editing and actually <laughs> create a Kaleidoscope scheme in an emulator. So... <laughs> Both of these emulator apps are fiddly. I think that's just the nature of emulation. And both of them are crashy. I think that that's just the nature of the classic Mac OS, <laughs> um, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, Basilisk, I have found, is like really, really fragile, which can be frustrating if you're actually trying to do work in it like I was that one time. Or even if you're just trying to, you know, like play a classic game and you can't get the thing to even launch. But one of the things about Basilisk is it's pretty lightweight. And both of these are open source multi-platform projects. So we'll link to both of them. And, you know, the best thing that you can do to get these up and running is to download the compiled macOS 10 macOS versions um, you know, no 10 anymore. Now, uh, I don't know that any of these have necessarily been updated since Sierra, but they both run on Sierra to some degree or another. Um, but the thing is, you need the emulator software itself. You need a classic Mac ROM, which are technically, you know, copyrighted and not supposed to be distributed. And apparently for a while, Apple was very like strict about having people take them down but at this point they've kind of given up so they are more or less freely available uh on the internet and there are various tutorial sites to get these applications up and running some of which link directly to them and then you need the operating system itself which again you know is copyrighted software but it's abandonware uh at this point apple is not uh basing its future on protecting its intellectual property in system 7.5 and forbidding you from running it in emulation. So also somewhat readily available. The way that I got all these pieces together for Basilisk was uh, a tutorial that I'll link up that is from 2012. And it's, it's designed specifically for reading Clarisworks three documents in OS 10, which is something that, uh, I still occasionally need to do, and now this is the way of doing it. Um, so you have Basilisk, you have your uh, your startup image and uh, performer ROM that's available from there. Um, and then you need to configure the emulator. Basilisk is, like I said, it's a cross-platform app, and when you open it up, it is... It has that look and feel of a Java application uh. that is purely cross-platform and is kind of like wedged into an OS X window where where the tabs and buttons don't quite quite kind of look right. The pop-up menus are all wrong, um, but it works. Um, you do need to do some kind of fussy stuff in there. You need to specify uh, where your ROM is. You need to specify where the disk image, that's your startup disk, will be. And then you need to, in all these emulators, they have a nice feature, which is you've got those disk images and that's like, that's your little emulation virtual machine universe. Uh, 
but they also offer the ability to specify a folder in your OS X file system that they often call the Unix root or the Unix drive. And it takes that folder, which obviously you can manipulate in the modern finder, and it mounts that like it's a network hard drive in the emulator. So this is like this is like your little airlock back and forth between the two universes where you know you can download a piece of software in Safari in your up-to-date Mac OS, and then you know, maybe you can expand the file because it's the type like a dot bin file that you can still expand natively, or maybe it's a stuff it archive, and you have to push the stuff it archive through your shared area into the emulated environment, open it with stuff at expander there, and then you can throw out the .sit file. Also in the settings, you get to specify things like the screen resolution, how much uh, virtual RAM you're assigning to oh, the... Um, not like virtual memory, but like how much how much RAM is your fake computer that you are emulating? How much RAM does the virtual machine get? Um, you're usually talking like 32, 64, 128 megabytes, especially for Basilisk, because uh, this is uh, you know, 68K Mac hardware. Um, and beyond that, you'll probably be uh, totally set. <laughs> in fact, if you put in too large of a value, it might not run because it might not be compatible with the ROM. It doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it doesn't know what to do with uh, two gigabytes of RAM. It has absolutely no idea. Um, one of the great things about Basilisk, once you get it set up, and uh, you actually have it booting into, I have, you know, I think the version that came here is like 7.5.3. Uh, on a modern Mac, Basilisk turns on like a light bulb. Like, it is almost instant to boot in, which is great because you're going to have to do it 100 times when it crashes. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that's kind of annoying uh, that I've noticed with it is that I think something to do with, like, emulating the color space on the classic Mac is like if you're running Flux on your current Mac or like maybe in the future, Mac OS is going to include the night shift feature from iOS. Like you get some like weird color flashes at launch, but then everything equalizes out. And once you're inside, uh, it's just, it's just a window running system seven and you will quickly remember all of the things, good and bad habits that you have uh, learned since System 7, or even recently in the classic Mac OS, you will try to resize a window from its edge. You'll particularly do that uh, in... Uh, so in System 7, that's just going to do nothing. It's just going to laugh at you. <laughs> and if you're running Kaleidoscope, or if you're running Mac OS 8 or later, you can actually drag the windows by those edge borders, but it does not resize them. <laughs> You will also, in System 7, uh, forget that you have to hold down the mouse button and drag uh, in menus to select, uh, even through submenus, which can be frustrating. And you will also, uh, just out of sheer force of habit, use a scroll wheel or scroll gesture. And all of these emulators, uh, they have some affordance for that, but... In the classic Mac OS, there wasn't really a way to capture mouse wheel gestures, maybe later in Mac OS 9, but it doesn't look like Sheepshaver has options for that either. So what it does is you can set kind of the tolerances, but it basically just spams the up or down arrow keys, which is sometimes effective until you get to the bottom of a window and it just starts setting off uh, alert beeps 
or if you're in a context where that actually doesn't even make any sense to spam the up or down arrows. Um, so it's you kind of have to train yourself out of doing that, or I think you can turn the feature off entirely uh, in some emulators. So like if you try that, it just goes that was that's not a feature here. Why are you trying that? So then, uh, Sheep Shaver, the more modern one that you said you've you've just gotten into. Yeah, so I had never gotten Sheep Shaver up and running. Uh, I don't know exactly for which reason I tried Basilisk first. I think it was maybe because I came across this all-in-one tutorial where Sheep Shaver was more like, oh, I think in the official Sheep Shaver instructions, it's like, first thing you need is a Mac OS 9 install CD. And it can't be one that came with a computer. It has to be like a retail box. I'm like, I don't have one of those, so I am not going to try this. Uh, but there is a tutorial over at a site called Redundant Robot. This is the like go-to Sheep Shaver tutorial, and it's been apparently it was longer in the past and has been boiled down to its essence as of uh, last summer. And there are some good resources available for download here, including the ROM that you need. So um, PowerPC, you can run either a uh, old world architecture Nubus or new world architecture ROM. I don't know really what difference it would make, except that uh, they suggest that if you're if you want to emulate the latest versions of classic Mac, you know, if you're up into nine nine point one, um, that you should probably run the New World ROM because it's more closely aligned to the software. Uh, but also, what they have here is a Mac OS nine boot image. So basically, it's a they say it's 120 megs. It's 512 gig or 512 megabytes, <laughs> um, because that's the size that they sized the image to, um, and that's the full size of the download. Uh, but it is a fully bootable version of Mac OS 9.0.0. <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to bite me as I use this in the future because you know it's a point .0 version, but uh, it is available there as well. Same deal where you have kind of a finicky setup process. With Basilisk, at least, um, Basilisk ships with two programs. One's called Basilisk 2, and one's called Basilisk 2 GUI. And the one is the setup application. So you launch it and get all of your settings properly, and then you open the GUI application, I think, and it might be the other way around. Uh, Then you open the emulator application, and it either boots or doesn't boot. Cheap Shaver is all in one, and they're like, if you haven't done the setup properly, if you don't have a compatible ROM file, it will just immediately quit instead of sending you to a preferences screen. It's like, that is not helpful. (laughs) Why wouldn't you not just send me to the preferences screen instead? But that's not how it works. And so they said, all the tutorials say, you put the ROM in the same folder, you name it macOS ROM with no extensions, if it's not a compatible ROM, Sheepshaver will immediately quit. So I tried like 20 different ROMs from all across the internet, uh, and it kept quitting, quitting, quitting. I'm like, I don't know what is wrong with my setup. These ROMs must be faulty. Turns out, in Sierra, there's something we... So Sheepshaver hasn't been updated since about two years, no, three years ago now. Um, but it's still compatible with uh, the latest versions of macOS. But 
There's some weird issues. I think it might be like a gatekeeper bug or something because it's unsigned software. So I went through the, you know, yes, I want to open this. But then it still like automatically quits at launch. And the workaround, which I found by furiously Google searching and then it turned up in their forums, is I do not understand why this works. This should not work. They say, copy the application to your desktop, delete it, and then move the copy back into the folder. And it works. Wow. So that is something bizarre about the current Mac OS uh, that was keeping me from getting Sheepshaver up and running. And so now I do have a copy of it running, and uh, it is a bit slower to boot uh, than System 7 in Basilisk. Um, but so far, I haven't really put it through its paces, but it seems pretty stable. Uh, and I'm looking forward to see what I can do with it to get some more classic software running for uh, for future episodes. Can you tell yet if Sheepshaver has network access? Like it can use your Ethernet or Wi-Fi? Oh, I haven't I haven't tried anything like that. Uh, I'll I'll report back for a follow up next time. If so, I wonder if you can run software update because you have 9.0.0 and see if Apple's servers are like, well, oh. I'm sure those servers are not running anymore. Yeah. Thank you for going through that because, I mean, like you just said with that most recent tidbit, like there are so many little steps in getting an emulator set up uh, that I got frustrated. (laughs) Um, So hopefully like this episode will be useful to anyone looking to emulate uh, because if anyone listening to it is like me, I went the uh, the very lazy route and I bought actual old Mac hardware. And uh, my process was not very complex. It was basically like, what were some of the latest produced models that could still natively boot into Mac OS 9? And a uh, friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, had a good post recently on a kind of off model of the G4 tower, the mirror drive door tower, that was kind of like specially produced to help uh, creative professionals, which is a hot topic still, um, be able to run at, what was it, Quark Express or one of those desktop publishing apps that hadn't yet been updated for OS X. So Apple kind of brought back this late model G4 that could still natively boot to OS 9. Yeah, that post is on Stephen's site, but was actually written by Tom Brand, who was on the show a few episodes ago and knows a thing or two about emulation as well. That's right. That's right. Um, and Ed, uh, you had the Titanium PowerBook G4, which uh, was also a native boot into OS 9. Yeah, that machine is, I think, still in a drawer at my parents' house, though. And uh, I haven't really felt... I mean, it's its battery is on Beyond Dead, so it has to be plugged into the wall to run at all, which is another one of those reasons where I'm like, eh, if I can pull off the emulation route on the machines that I already have set up, uh, it might actually be easier. I also don't think that I have an installation of OS 9 on it um, because it shipped with OS 10. You could add OS 9 in dual boot, but I don't think that I ever set it up that way. You could run Classic as well. Um, although I probably updated it in the course of using the machine through college to a OS 10 version that no longer supported classic in a window. Gotcha. Uh, so the way I went was a dual USB iBook G3. So this is not the toilet seat clamshell original iBook. This is the next model 
that kind of introduced the the modern hinge that many Apple laptops still have. And I know they've refined it to be like one piece in the latest laptops, but basically the first hinge where the screen kind of went back behind the keyboard. Yeah, and this was a 2001 machine. My PowerBook was a 2002 machine, and that uh, drive door tower, mirror drive door tower, was a 2003 machine, and that one really was the very, very last machine that would boot OS 9. This model of iBook, I think, doesn't have a lot going for it. The iBook G4 came out not too far afterwards, and besides upgrading from a G3 to a G4, the the chassis and like the keyboard all got pretty sizable upgrades and it was just all around a better machine. And uh, one of the like quirky things about this model of iBook was actually brought to my attention by Stephen Hackett, where I think he like affectionately refers to this line of iBook G3 as the body odor iBook because there's like some adhesive or something in the keyboard. Yeah, I think it is the glue that's used to hold two layers of the keyboard together. And over time, it like off gases or something in a smell that is very distinctly like human body odor. Oh, it's like uh, it's like how the uh, material in old books breaks down and it smells good because it produces that uh, chemical that's like similar to vanilla, except the opposite. But anyway, I picked up one of these off of eBay and... For the most part, it's been fine. Um, it's it's a similar battery situation to what you described with your titanium power book. It has maybe like a five-minute battery window, so I basically have to keep it tethered to a wall all the time. Um, the model I got uh, came with the optional airport card, the original airport card. So um, I think like for our first episode, uh, I was able to... Get, like I had to reconfigure my Wi-Fi network to be 802.11b and uh, absolutely no security because the iBook couldn't <laughs> handle it. Uh, but I was able to load our uh, podcast webpage in Classilla on this iBook and take a photo of it. It was pretty nice. Uh, the only hiccup I've had is there was a maybe about one year into our show, I would be using this iBook and there would be a, a literal pop and the screen would freeze where it was and then just kind of like fade into uh, like a mosaic of random colors. Uh, that's totally fine, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Like if you ever opened ResEdit and like an icon or a kick-in and opened it in the hex instead of the GUI editor and just typed in a bunch of gobbledygook and closed it and reopened it and you get that kind of like technicolor static, that's what this would do. <laughs> and um, so there was like maybe – a period of a couple months where I could get maybe a good half hour into a session on this iBook and then something would pop on the inside and the screen would freeze and have this overlay of static. It's kind of remarkable that that isn't permanent. I mean, that sounds like a capacitor just like giving up the ghost. I have absolutely no idea what is going on, but I kind of let the laptop just sit for a while and then went back to it a couple months later and it's been working fine ever since. So this is some weird ghost body odor laptop but uh, it's it's is it's like pretty convenient. It came with a fresh install of OS nine, and just to be safe, I bought a retail copy of OS nine CD on eBay, so I have something to boot it from if anything ever happens. Uh, but it has a USB one port, so I can download stuff on my main computer, put it on a USB thumb drive, and shuttle it over to the iBook whenever I want to. 
play Escape Velocity, basically. That's pretty good. Uh, how much did it run you on eBay for those things? The OS9 CD was probably like 10 bucks shipped. It was just like a CD in a slim jewel case. The iBook was maybe 50 bucks and like 20 shipping. That's not bad. So, you know, um, you know, maybe pick a model that doesn't stink to high heaven. Uh, but if you can, especially again, if you're curious about trying to get uh, like an internet application up and running um, for under a hundred bucks, you might, yeah, it might be worth your time to go the hardware route instead of trying to do, I don't even know if it's possible emulation tunneling to your to your current modern Wi-Fi. And like you said, uh, like changing the network um, and yeah, some of the modern security standards are not available. Uh, if you have a good modern Wi-Fi router that can do like multiple band support and also supports a guest network, um, like we updated to an Eero, uh, which was great because it does uh, multi-mode like BG, NA, AC, everything uh, really seamlessly, where our old one uh, would really like cut out high the like you would lose the high speeds if you went to the mixed mode network, which is a pain because that was what our printer ran on and other devices like uh, I have a Nintendo 3DS, which requires 802.11b as well. Um, so if you can get a device that has those mixed modes and you can set up a guest network, then you could have that guest network be in B 802.11 B mode with basically no security on it and still like preserve the sanctity of the rest of your network, um, and get that device online. Um, and like really, you know, if you're doing it at home, um, what are the odds that someone is going to try to hack your classic Mac through unsecured Wi-Fi? <laughs> like, you know, don't do not do your banking on it, but, like, obviously that's not what you're going to try to run Mac OS 9 for anyway. Yeah, final note on kind of price. Uh, I think Stephen mentioned when he was uh, talking about his new Keylime iBook. I do hope a post is uh, forthcoming on that or a video. <laughs> that it seems that the the clamshell original iBook models still carry somewhat of a premium on eBay. Uh, and I would guess, although I haven't checked that titanium power books do as well, and maybe most power books. So I think for like pure price efficiency, the, the stinky iBook G3 might be your best bet. And it, I think it was also like a, a pretty common education purchase. Cause I've seen like big lots of iBook G3s go up for sale but yes, if you want something with a little more style or a little less uh, scent, <laughs> you can go for some of the more classy models. So that's our uh, software and hardware for actually running Classic Mac and Classic Mac software. But there are a lot of great other resources uh, that have given us tons and tons of information on the classic Mac and things going on in the community that are just available on the web. And one of the huge ones is obviously the internet archive. And if you love this stuff or even just are curious uh, or want a you know trip down memory lane of what the web was like back to about 1995, 96, um, the internet archive is for you, especially the Wayback machine, which we rely on heavily. You'll, you can't go more than an episode or two without seeing some Wayback Machine links in our show notes. 
We try to give links to current sites when they're relevant, but sometimes you have to get that snapshot to really understand a product or how something was being pitched in the past or like the Apple Cafe whose website was up for about three months before it got turned into a park domain. Uh, so the Wayback Machine is an invaluable tool. People are still using it now. People think that you know it's really important to make sure that we have pretty comprehensive and up-to-date uh, snapshots of how the web looks even now for the future. And it's really remarkable how much there is going back. I mean, I can find things of you know personal websites that I put up years and years ago, not even thinking that, oh, oh these are being archived for posterity. <laughs> um, I mean, that's also kind of important to remember if you're if you're doing something that uh, you are privacy conscious about. Um, the Wayback Machine also has a beta feature now where you can search by keyword, which is really great. Otherwise, you need to know basically the exact URL of a site. Um, and that will often lead me... My strategy on that is if you can figure out what the root level of the site is, you can go to that, then scroll back the clock to about the time that you're looking for and then kind of poke around, but you have to be able to navigate to the page that you exactly want. Otherwise, um, if you have a if you have a link, uh, like maybe a source link from a Wikipedia article that's a dead link now, you can go directly to it in the Wayback Machine, which is very nice and easy. One of the other things that the Internet Archive offers is uh, they do have some in-browser emulation tools, and they're expanding these all the time and trying to put up classic software that can be run in-browser. There's a whole bunch of great old Apple II and DOS games that are available, uh, like the Oregon Trail you can play in your browser at any time that you want. I think that the version they have is technically the DOS version, but it looks all the world like the Apple II version. There's basically no difference between them. Uh, and it's really great to be able to, uh, you know, you don't have to set up any kind of fiddly emulation to get to that. You just have to follow a link in your web browser, wait for their, I don't even know how they do it, magic in-browser emulation software to load up. It takes a matter of seconds and you're you're viewing the app that you were interested in, which is a really, really handy resource. If, on the other hand, you're doing something where you are rolling your own emulation, uh, in Basilisk or Sheepshaver, and you need a copy of a classic Mac app uh, because you probably don't have it laying around in a format that's easily accessible. It's not just sitting on a USB drive, you know, thumb drive uh, wait, waiting to plug into your I, iBook G3. Uh, the number one site that I've found for that is Macintosh Garden, uh, which is at macintoshgarden.org. Mm -hmm. The site is has a really pretty comprehensive list of old Mac abandonware uh, with download links that are pretty reliable. The site itself, I have noticed, is a little bit pokey. It's slow. Like, I, have the I get the impression that this is like a self-hosted site. And I hope that that means, you know, I hope that it stays around forever because it's a great community resource for these kind of things. And they do have a lot of stuff that will get the job done for you when nothing else will. Like, I had a file that I think was written in, like, Word 5. I don't even know where I got it from. But I wanted to open it, because, like, my, I never had Word at that time, but I had this ancient Word document. Nothing would open it up. So what do I do? Go to Macintosh Garden. They have every version of Word for Mac, of classic vintage. Download one that works. 
push everything through that Unix Unix shared drive hole on uh, in, in Basilisk, and lo and behold, it opens up. One of the tricky things, though, is you know a lot of the software that you get there they're installers, which makes sense. And sometimes when you're running inside emulation, it can be tricky to get the system to behave properly with an installer. Like sometimes you'll have um, you know software that came on seven floppy disks, and to convince the installer that you're actually physically swapping floppy disks. When they're disk images, it can be it can be a little bit weird. Sometimes people have written uh, patches that kind of try to fool it in that way. I think uh, like that word installation that I did was like that. Another thing that you might run into is that sometimes you'll get the installer to open, but it'll demand to be installed on the startup disk. And sometimes the startup disk image that you got is too small. Like it basically just contains the system folder. And so at one point I had to create an additional disk image and they're not the DMG format that's used in OS 10. You have to use a .img format. And to do that, you have to like go in because disk utility on the Mac just keeps getting fewer and fewer and fewer features at almost to the point of non-usability. And so you cannot go in there and create an arbitrary size, properly formatted HFS IMG uh, file. But fortunately, the command line utilities are there and you can look up the appropriate incantation to create, you know, a, a 500 megabyte IMG file that then you can mount as alongside your startup image or you can mount them both and through the magic of the classic Mac, just copy over that system folder and start using that as your startup image in the future. So I had to go through that stage at one point in Basilisk. And uh, like I said, the the image that we'll link to for Sheepshaver is already a 512 megabyte image. So you can get a fair amount of stuff in there before you have to start doing space management. Another thing that you might run into downloading software from the Macintosh Garden is uh, it could be compressed as a .bin, or .sit, .sea, any of these classic things. Uh, I've made the mistake of when it's a file that um, I use the unarchiver, which is a free application in the Mac App Store to handle all the software extraction natively in macOS, modern macOS. Uh, don't do that on your <laughs> modern machine before sending it on uh, a thumb drive or through the Unix wormhole. Um, take care of the extraction on uh, on the destination side because there might be different ways that it was encoded or encrypted uh, that the, the more modern software will get wrong. Um, and another thing that I have run into, similar to what you were just talking about with disk images, is there is software on the Macintosh Garden itself named Virtual DVD-ROM slash CD Utility. This is third-party software. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, if you run into software that is uploaded to the Macintosh Garden as a Toast file, everyone remembers Toast, and you don't want to mess with actually getting Toast running to examine that disk image, this is a fantastic small utility that has been able to handle any disk image I've thrown at it, .img, .bin, .toast, anything, and mount it as uh, basically a removable media. 
So uh, it's been very helpful to me in making sure like anything I get from the Macintosh garden, I'm able to open and install. Very cool. I've, I've also had the opposite problem where if I push the, uh, the compressed file through into my emulator and then I open it in stuff at expander, it'll crash stuff at expander or it'll crash the entire emulator. But believe it or not, you can get stuff at expander, the real thing from whatever company has bought them and continued it on for free on the Mac app store. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yep. And uh, it'll work. It'll it'll open up uh, your .bin.hqx, uh, your .sit files. The one thing that absolutely has to be done in emulation is if you have a .sea, a self-extracting archive file, because there is, I mean, those are there's no modern software that handles those, to my knowledge. It's an application, basically. It has to run in the classic Mac OS. Yeah, does what it says. It self-extracts. In addition to the Macintosh Garden, Ed, you mentioned uh, when you were browsing, you found some Pippin images. There's a similar site, the Macintosh Repository, that also has a lot of great software. I, I personally haven't dug around this site a lot, but it looks to be uh, you know, a similar resource. So also put that one in your bookmarks. I got one successful download from there and then tried to download again. And it was like, error, if you register for the site, we'll let you download more things. And I was like, oh, really? Um, so it may be kind of a last resort, but, um, if they have something that Macintosh garden or the rest of the internet doesn't, uh, it's worth a crack. Let's see. How about other, uh, so, so that covers it for software, but let's talk about some other historical resources. Our number one go-to hardware resource for me is the application Mac tracker, which is a standalone database of, every Apple hardware product that you can download and run locally on your Mac. Uh, it's searchable. You can create smart folders, has basically every single stat that you would want on any kind of any kind of Apple hardware release dates, maximum and minimum OS versions, what ports it has, uh, just the whole the whole run. Uh, the only thing that it doesn't have a whole lot of is it will have like one photo of each particular model. And so you might have to uh, head to the web for more uh, visual resources. One of the great things that it does have that we relied on it for all the way back in episode one is it has all the startup chimes. Uh, if you just click on the little icon for each uh, each hardware device, once you've opened it up, it will play. And if you option click, you get the chimes of death. And if you want all of those files, just crack open the Mac Tracker uh, application bundle, and they're all sitting inside. And as we learned, one of those files is actually what made it up to the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website uh, for registering the startup chime. If instead you'd like to look at these uh, resources online, there are a couple of sites like everymac.com or lowendmac.com. Uh, similar information a cool thing about lowendmac.com is they also have fun articles about a particular hardware line or specific hardware device that's more about the story behind it and less about the specs. But yeah, those are very similar to that uh, excellent application, Mac Tracker. Yeah, one of the fun things about Mac Tracker is it's it's regularly updated. Uh, it's really well maintained. And because it's a comprehensive database, that means it only gets larger and larger. <laughs> And it's up to about 80 megs now. <laughs> um, still keeps going as Apple cre keeps creating more and more hardware. 
It should go without saying that in a lot of our research, we end up at Wikipedia, which has a whole bunch of very methodically written and carefully researched with just a lot of information, uh, articles about classic Mac hardware, classic Mac software, uh, Apple at specific times in history. Uh, There's a whole wealth of knowledge on the basic Wikipedia, and there's also the Apple Wikia. I'd only heard of Wikia before starting this podcast in terms of like fan sites for TV shows. It's for fandoms. Like it still says that up at the top, even on the Apple one. I think I went to like the Lost Wikia a bunch when Lost was on the air, but there's a a pretty good one for Apple that actually has like decent stuff for Apple history. And in places where a Wikipedia may not warrant a full-blown article on like a point release of macOS 7.5.x uh, the Apple Wikia may sometimes have uh, an article there that talks about like maybe this was a 7.5.3p, which means it was for a specific Performa model. And you can sometimes find a little extra information there. Yeah, keep your ad blocker shields up there or you, your eyes will be burned out with horrible, horrible things. I've mentioned a couple keynotes. We often like to drop in keynotes. Uh, there, Of course, YouTube has a whole bunch of these, but uh, One account on YouTube that is very consistent in having keynotes and old television commercials and all kinds of Apple-related video content is the Every Steve Jobs Video account. Again, this is an account on YouTube. They also have their own standalone website that has like little blog articles that embed each YouTube video and have some additional information. Or in cases that we've relied on, like categorized, like these are all the keynotes from Town Hall, or these are all the keynotes from WWDC. Uh, So that's been a very helpful resource as well. Yeah, that's one of the best Apple resources out there. Extremely comprehensive and well curated. And every once in a while, we want to turn back to uh, just classic Mac magazines that were contemporary with whatever we're researching. And Obviously, the uh, the grandfather of Mac magazines is Macworld, and uh, there are many, many issues of Macworld that are available for free to download. The biggest collection that I've found is at a site called Vintage Apple. They have 1984 from issue number one with Steve Jobs leaning over the Mac on the cover all the way up through 1994. And then the Internet Archive also has some PDFs of Macworld Magazine. They have uh, hit or miss issues from 95 to 99. Later than that is a little bit hard to find, although uh, as we found with the concept episode, check your local library. They may actually have physical copies or they may have digital copies that you're able to peruse. Uh, Some of them have been digitized into like periodicals databases and there was one that I found where they had they tried to break out every article as a separate PDF, which was really weird. And they were all black and white, so it was not the greatest resource. But uh, those old magazines are available, and uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of freeing for any of you who might have actually been hoarding shelves and shelves of MacWorld magazines. That if you uh, if you know that you can have high quality scanned copies of them, maybe. Uh, Maybe you can free up that space for something else. (laughs) So those are our go-to resources as we put together our notes on various classic Mac topics. But we know that 
many of those sources have come to us from listeners or people sending in links on Twitter. So if you have other favorite resources that we didn't cover, please, please do share them with us because it's always great to find new avenues and new stuff that we didn't know existed that is uh, out there in the classic Mac space. You can get in touch with us by our website, simplebeep.com. There's a contact form there. You can also find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. Like we said, always great to receive links and feedback and comments on Twitter. The show is at simple underscore beep. And we're also individually on Twitter as well. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.